Let's take our Bibles this morning, please. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 this morning. We continue with our Portraits of Christ series. When you have found your place in John chapter 8, put a bookmark there or something and also find Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at both books this morning. We'll start in John 8, then we'll go to Romans chapter 8. So if you will find both those places, it'll save us some time later on. I have grown over the years to really appreciate the old hymns. And we, um, a few weeks ago, we had a group of boys come through that were biking around Lake Erie from Old Time Bible Baptist Church in Rochester, New York. And they had driven to a point on Lake Erie and they were going to ride all the way around. And every day they'd stop and have some preaching and some camping and lunch devotions. And, and, uh, but these boys were also a choir. So they stopped here one night and slept in our yard, and the preacher said, we'd like to sing for our supper. What is, what is your favorite hymn? And I said, he hideth my soul. It didn't take me long to think about it, because there's been a lot of times in life and in ministry, and I like that reminder. Any song that starts out, a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord is on the right track. And one of my second favorite hymns, are, I, you can't really rate them, can you? But it's right up there. Our great Savior, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, Jesus, lover of my soul. I love that, that chorus, hallelujah, what a Savior, hallelujah. And I got a little choked up when I said, what a friend. He's not just my Savior, he's my friend. And I just, it just overwhelms me sometimes to think about that. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, he'll be with me till the end. Never leave me nor forsake me. And, I was thinking about Paul when Donna was singing that song. Donna, he was, that first, that first verse spoke a lot to the McPherson's life and uh, the tragedies they have gone through. And I could hear him over there going, oh, amen, oh, amen, oh, amen. And uh, boy, it's, uh, I like the new songs some too, but I, I, those old hymns, I tell you, uh, they help you. And there's, and, uh, I, you know, there's, there's some hymns that, that I find sometimes, they're, they're not wrong. And they're not bad to sing, and we sing them maybe at different times. I'll fly away. It's not my favorite hymn, but it's one of those ones that makes us feel good. It's about us. I'll fly away one day. But I find the songs that really help me are the ones that worship. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And he hideth my soul in the cloud. I'm talking about the Lord. What a wonderful Savior. Jesus, my Lord. And so think about the songs that are dearest to your heart, the songs that... When you're going through a trial or you're just working throughout the week and the songs you start humming along with and singing in your head, I can almost promise you they're likely those songs that have worship in them because those are the ones the Lord likes. And when he gives us a song, he's going to give us a song that he wants to hear. And so that and 50 cents won't buy you a cup of coffee. I just thought I'd share that with you this morning. I'm glad that, hallelujah, what a friend. He's my friend. Turn to John chapter 8 this morning. We're looking at the portraits of Christ. We've gone through 13 or 14 weeks of it, and we're into the John chapter 8 now. We're going to look at just the first 11 verses. We're only going to spend a very little time in the book of John this morning because I believe what the Lord Jesus Christ did in these first 11 verses of John chapter 8 illustrates Romans chapter 8 so well that we would be remiss if we didn't go over there and spend some time about Lord Jesus Christ taking away our condemnation. Jesus Christ taking away our condemnation. So John chapter 8, read with me this morning. 
Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees. How many of you know that Jesus' morning is about to take a turn for the worse? As soon as the religious crowd gets involved, anything that Jesus is involved in, it always seems to turn downward. And Jesus is just ministering to people early in the morning. He's at the temple. People are coming and he's teaching them the things of God. And then the scribes and Pharisees show up. Now we've got trouble. And it says, And the scribes and Pharisees, verse 3, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. And just in case Jesus didn't catch it, they said, in the very act. You don't have to ask us who witnessed this. We saw it. I don't know about you, but I smell a setup. I I don't know what these Pharisees and these scribes were doing, peeking in somebody's window, but I think there was a setup going on. Now Moses, verse 5, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his fingers wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Has anybody ever heard what Jesus wrote on the ground? I've heard a lot of people suppose, but I've never heard uh, any scriptural reason. Some have said maybe he was writing the names of all those Pharisees' girlfriends. I don't know. That could be very well the truth. They, They were hypocrites, he called them in other parts of the Bible. But nonetheless, we don't know. It just seems like he was oblivious to their complaints. And in verse 7, he says, So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Here's probably the most wonderful two verses of this passage. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Father, we thank you for your love for us. and We do thank you that you are our friend. A friend for sinners. Lost and hopeless and bound for hell. And you were our friend. Not only were you a friend, you want to step beyond and you loved us. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Lord, we are overwhelmed with the thought today that uh, the old song, Victory in Jesus, he sought me and he bought me. What wonderful grace and what wonderful love. And Father, if we, if we were wise, perhaps we would just lay aside the message this morning and just talk about your love and talk about your grace. But Lord, in our passage today, we see your love and your grace.
We're reminded in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So Father, may the Holy Spirit of God fill our hearts with these thoughts today. Perhaps there's somebody here today that knows not Christ. Father, they are living in condemnation. They're lost in sin and Jesus is offering hope today. Maybe there's some Christians today that need the reminder that God still loves them. Father, sometimes we get so focused on other things that just don't matter so much. We get all worked up about petty things and we take our eyes off the Savior. Father, help us to, like the old hymn says, look full in your wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, I need your help. I ask that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to preach what you've laid on my heart. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could just take just a few minutes and outline John chapter 8 for you, I won't spend a lot of time preaching from John chapter 8 because like I said earlier, I believe that John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11 is a wonderful introduction to Romans chapter 8. The Gospels give us the Gospel message. They give us the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And later on, we see the apostles begin to define it a little clearly for us. And so this morning in John chapter 8, the first thing I want you to see is the crime. The crime. The Bible says in verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought into him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. I have preached on this passage before, perhaps you've remembered or not, it really doesn't matter, but we often condemn this woman, but we have to ask, where is the man? It seems like that this whole situation stunk of a setup. That does not excuse the woman taken in adultery, that does not make her crime more palatable, it was sin nonetheless. Uh, We are not trying to sugarcoat sin today. We are not trying to say that we should not discipline those that have done wrong. We are commanded in the word of God to discipline our children. The Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. We understand that. I I understood as uh, we learned from another pastor and his family that there were times where he would chasten his children and he would discipline his children. But there were also times that he would take his child aside and spend some time talking to him about the sin, about the problem. But he would also say, now I'm going to show mercy. Because I want you to understand the love and mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And boy, you know, for somebody that would get disciplined, a little boy on a, maybe a daily or a bi-daily basis, every other day they're getting, getting in trouble for something, they would just light up and say, mercy, grace, what is that? What a wonderful thing to experience God's grace and to learn about the freeing grace of Jesus Christ that removes all condemnation. This woman experienced such a moment. But her crime, nonetheless, was very real. And we see the crime led to a command in verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Jesus is all in black and white. There's no way we can get around this. There's no argument to be made. The law says stone her. What sayest thou? And they're probably elbowing one another and snickering a little bit. Now let's see him wiggle his way out of this one. We know what that Jesus is like. He's a liberal thinker and he just loves everybody. and He doesn't care a thing about our law. Let's see how he gets out of this one. Well, I like what he did first. He ignored them. 
Boy, I like that. I don't know why I like that. He just he ignored the critics. He just stooped down and with his finger or stick or something began to just draw, write. I, I don't know what he was doing. Doesn't matter, but I know it probably made him mad. And they just kept asking him, what do you say? What's your answer? The Bible says that very clearly. It says, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down. In verse seven, so when they continued asking him, what do you think about this command? What are you gonna do about the law? Are you gonna break another law, Jesus? They were tempting Jesus because the command was clear. Thirdly, we see the compassion. Look at verse seven. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Why? Well, I don't know if there's a single sentence in Scripture that comes with more condemnation than that one verse. It's incredible. Have you ever done this? Have you ever had to have a discussion with somebody? And... Ten minutes after the discussion's over, you go, oh, man, that would have been a good comeback. I wish I'd said that. You ever, you ever said that? Oh, that would have been the bright. Why didn't I think of that answer when they were talking to me? Boy, I do that all the time. I, I don't know why. I just, Jesus didn't have to think like that. He stooped down patiently and listened to them whine and cry and complain and shove the command at them. He just stood up and said, let he that is without sin among you first cast a stone at her. That was the compassion of Jesus Christ. You say, was Jesus against biblical discipline? No, not at all. I read a passage in the scripture where the Lord's house was being defiled by the money changers and the Bible says that Jesus sat on the front steps of the temple and he weaved a scourge. And he went in there and he started flipping over tables and throwing. Did Jesus get angry? He sure did. He got angry at the right things. The Bible says be angry and sin not. It's not a sin to be angry. I get angry every time I read an article about abortion. It makes me angry. I get angry every time somebody bombs Israel. That makes me angry. I get angry every time I hear about a homosexual agenda. That makes me angry. The Bible says be angry, just don't sin in your anger. And Jesus was not against discipline. He went in and cleansed the temple twice. Because that was his father's house. And you were defiling it. But Jesus knew how to show compassion. Then we see the word Conviction. In verse 9, and they which heard it, heard Jesus say, let him first cast a stone at her. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Let me show you something, friend. I had never seen this before. I'm, I'm learning something with you. The Bible says in verse 2, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. You say, who are all the people? I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm assuming it's all the people that came to the temple that morning to pray and worship. 
You understand that lots of, we read about Simeon. We read about Anna, the prophetess that was stayed at the temple. Simeon went to the temple every day to pray. I, I got to expect there was a lot of people like that. A lot of people that loved God, a lot of people that were looking for the Messiah, a lot of people that went every day to the temple and that would be their place of prayer and they'd get up early in the morning and go down there and they'd, get, they'd pray and have their devotions there, maybe get some water at a well on the way home and go about their day. So all these people gathered around Jesus. The Bible says the scribes and the Pharisees came in verse 3. Then the Bible says in verse 9, and they which heard it. Now notice this. All the people that had come that morning to worship, to pray, whatever reason, maybe there were some marketplaces out around. If you've been to Jerusalem, you'll just know that the temple's there and there's markets all around and different things outside the gates there and all these people had gathered around. The Bible never says that when the Pharisees came, they left. So those that were witnessing this woman cast at his feet and being accused of adultery, I have to believe it was more than just the Pharisees and the scribes, it was also many of these people that had gathered to listen to Jesus teach. Nobody had left. The Bible doesn't say they left. But the Bible says in verse 9, and they which heard it, who is they? It's not just the Pharisees and the scribes, it's whoever heard. Isn't it interesting that sometimes God does a work on other people that you never thought God was going to do a work on. The Holy Spirit of God just kind of spilled over on that day. The Pharisees and the scribes were the ones that Jesus was rebuking and that was who his intentions uh, were targeting and, and that's who he was talking to when he says, let he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. That's who he was talking to. But the Bible says in verse nine, they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left what? Alone. Now, a minute ago, there was scribes, Pharisees, and a whole pile of people that were listening to him teach, but every one of them left. Now, I'm not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that the people in the audience that day were guilty of anything, and yet the Holy Spirit stopped by, and when God gave the invitation, they all went home with their heads hung. It's interesting to note that when the Holy Spirit comes by, so many people react differently. I've been in services where the altars are packed right full and three people are standing there kind of pious and saying, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know their heart. That's between them and the Lord. But you have to wonder, hey, the Holy Spirit is moving. What is going on? How hard are our hearts that God cannot speak to us? The whole crowd that just came to hear him teach, they all went home too under conviction. Then I want you to see the conclusion in verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Nobody's left but him and her. She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. In a crowd of sinners. The woman with adultery is the only one that could still stand in his presence. Think about that. 
in a crowd of people who with right intentions came that morning to pray, to worship, and Jesus came by the temple. So they said, well, uh, we better go and listen, sit at the feet of Jesus. I mean, these were good people, loved the Lord, and they came and they sat at the feet of Jesus. But when the sermon was over, that one-sentence sermon, the only one left was the lady that was taken in adultery. For perhaps it was she who had experienced the most grace on that day. Nobody else was condemned to die but her. And because of her brokenness and her thankfulness, I believe she gave her heart to Jesus that day. You say, can you prove that? I can't prove it, but look what the Bible says. We've seen the crime, the command, the compassion, the conviction, the conclusion, but I want you to see the conversion. The conversion, verse 11. She said, no man, Lord. What did she call him? Lord. She surrendered to Jesus. She experienced his grace. She felt his mercy. She surrendered to his leadership. Now, and she called him Lord. And then Jesus said this, knowing that her heart was a field that was ready to have a seed planted in it, said this, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Do you know what he was saying to her? Repent. When you go and sin no more, you're repenting. You're turning from that old lifestyle. You're turning from your sin. He was saying to her, hey, you're not, you're not a prostitute anymore. You're not an adulteress anymore. Go and sin no more. Leave that life behind. Follow after me. You know, it's interesting that a lot of times the writers in the Bible and things will identify people by their past. In Matthew, we read about Rahab the harlot. I'm going to tell you what, I, I, I got to be honest with you, I have, a, I have a, a suspicion that if we get to heaven and we see Rahab, we run out, hey, hey, aren't you Rahab the harlot? Somebody's going to punch you in the nose. <laughs> hey, and rightfully so, because she's been washed in the blood of Christ. She stands redeemed before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This woman here, Jesus said, Don't you, you're, you're not like that anymore. You have, you've accepted my mercy. You've accepted my grace. All these others had to go home with their heads hanging down. But you're right here. And I believe her soul was converted that day. I told you as we started this message, I believe that John chapter 8 is a wonderful picture of Romans chapter 8, that God is, is showing us in John chapter 8 what he wants to show us also in Romans chapter 8. I want you to turn there with you, if you will. John uses the word condemn in John chapter 8 and verse 11. But in Romans chapter 8, we learn that there is therefore now no condemnation. Can I make this comparison today? Without naming sin... We were in the very same boat as that adulterous woman. I'm not saying that you were an adulterer. Some of you were saved at seven years old. I, I, I don't mean to think that you were an adulterer. I understand that. I'm just saying that we were all sinners. We were all lost and we all needed the grace of God and we needed His compassion. In Romans chapter 8, we come to the throne of God and, and Jesus reminds us and He says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, and then look at this, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, Brother Cameron, Brother Cameron here this morning, you're, you're, you're a science teacher, correct? I, I learned in science class, you'll have to help me if I'm wrong, that we, we were taught a, a scientific formula or something, I can't remember what it's called, it's been a long time, and we started with a thesis, and then we needed three proofs before it could become fact. Is, is that generally correct? Am I kind of on the right track? Very simplistic? Well, that's good. That's the only way I'd understand it. And so I remember in class, the teacher would say, well, we want you to develop a thesis, put the thesis down, and then we want you to give you some proofs. And we can't call it a fact unless it's proof. That's why I don't understand evolution. They have no proof. It's just a thesis. It's a theory. It's not fact. But we're to have a fact. And I look at Romans chapter 8, and I get thinking, you know, this is kind of like that. The first two verses give us a thesis. But by the way, scientists might call it a thesis, but since it's the Holy Spirit of God, it's a fact right up front. Amen? I can trust it. If God did not give me the rest of Romans chapter 8, I can trust Romans chapter 8, 1 and 2. I don't need all the proof. But let's look at it this way today. God gives us this fact. There is therefore now no condemnation. Amen? Praise the Lord. We are saved. We are child of God. We don't have to worry about the guilt anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now he gives us some proof. Here's the first thing. And I wrote this in the margin of my Bible. Maybe you could do the same. In verse 3, I wrote the word flesh. Flesh. Do you understand that if I'm going to follow after my flesh, I'm going to follow after condemnation? I'll be condemned just as sure as that woman was in John chapter 8 if I follow after the flesh. Now look what the scripture says. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then, they, so then that they, sorry, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for verses 3 through 8 because God knows how hard-headed I can be. And he reminds me over and again how easy I can forget. Let me ask you this. I don't want you to tell me what the sin was. How many of you in some time in your life have prayed and asked forgiveness for that same sin 30 times? Oh, God, forgive me for that. And God's like, I already did forgive you. What sin are you talking about? Amen. It's under the blood. It's washed. Next day, oh, ah, for, Lord, forgive me for that thing. I forgave you yesterday. We are not trusting in his grace. We're not believing the word of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. To forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, we need to learn to trust. That's the flesh. That's the devil reminding us of condemnation. That's the devil trying, because if we're worried about that all the time and we can't find forgiveness, we won't do anything for the Lord. 
We'll be living in the flesh. The flesh is what first got this woman into trouble. It's what gets everyone into trouble. Now look what the flesh brings with it. First of all, the flesh brings condemnation. In verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Listen, let me put it another way. If you are in the flesh, you are in sin. And God says, I have condemned sin in the flesh. See, when we walk in the flesh, we are walking in condemnation. Do you understand that? You're like somebody on death row. Dead man walking. You're just living in death. You, you, you say, well, I'm a child of God. I'm saved. But you're living like a dead man. You're living in the flesh and you're dwelling in sin and you can't shake off those old filthy rags. That's the flesh. And there's condemnation in the flesh. The second thing we see about the flesh is it not only does it bring condemnation, it brings carnality. It brings carnality. Verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And Paul defines that for us. He says, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. If you're like me, every once in a while I get on a little bit of a health kick. Does anybody do that? No? <laughs> you really ought to. I, sh I shouldn't be on a health kick. I should just be doing it all the time. And I've, I've learned this. Um, one day I took out Bethany and Abby, the Ronson's granddaughter. Do you know what Abby ate at Wendy's? A Baconator. She's this big around. And I said, girls, I'll get you anything you want today. It's my treat. What would you like? And they went, Baconators. And they ate the whole thing with fries, the Coke, everything. Here's what I've learned. If I eat that Baconator today, and if I eat a Baconator tomorrow, and I eat a Baconator Wednesday, I don't feel so good. You know, about an hour after you eat that thing, the grease sits in your stomach. But for some reason, the next day, I begin craving a Baconator. How many of you started drinking coffee just to be social, but now you have to have a coffee every day? Your body starts craving those things. Here's what I've also learned. That if I get on a health kick and I start eating salads and things like that, yogurt and fruit, all of a sudden after a little while, that's what I'm craving. And if somebody says, do you want a Baconator? I go, ooh, I really don't want all that grease. Boy, that just turns my stomach right now. You see, what we begin to feed ourselves, we begin to crave spiritually. It's the same way. Spiritually, it's the same way. The Bible proves that. I, I'm not just making this up. Look what Romans chapter 8 says. And look what it says in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. If you're going to live in the flesh, if you're going to walk in the flesh, if you're not going to be spiritually minded, all of a sudden you start craving the things of the flesh. You understand what I'm saying? If you start living for self, you're going to seek entertainment rather than edification. When I was in Bible college, whenever the Super Bowl came around, 
I was shocked to see that half the Bible college didn't go to church on Sunday night because of the Super Bowl. My preacher used to say, man, these guys are training for ministry and they won't go to church because of a football game. Do you know most of those guys aren't preaching anymore? Most of those guys aren't in the ministry. Most of those guys, the ones that I know of that would do that, because they were carnally minded, they said the flesh is more important. What I want is more important than what is right for me. I, I learned a long time ago that if I were to say to my kids, listen, we got to go away for a couple hours. There's lots of food in the fridge. Go ahead and eat. They're going to choose the popsicles before they choose the salad. You know what? I mean, the, fr- the, the good stuff's going to be empty. The ice cream's gone. Whatever, whatever is unhealthy. We could say, now listen, uh, mom, mom put some nice chicken breast in there and she put some nice rice in there and she put some vegetables in there. All you gotta do is warm it up a little bit and they're going for the pizza pockets. That's just the way they are. Listen, we don't give our kids always what they want. We give them what's best for them and what they need. We have to feed ourselves spiritually the same way because if we mind the things, or if we follow after the flesh, we will mind the things of the flesh. So the flesh leads to condemnation and it leads to carnality. And then we'll see the conclusion in verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh, what's the next three words? Cannot please God. That's the scariest part, isn't it? It's, it's not about. You say, well, hey, it's no big deal. I just went to the Super Bowl for a night. I, you know, I'm, in church, I'm in church 155 services a year instead of 156. No, no, it's not about that. It's about minding the things of the flesh, and those that are in the flesh cannot please God. I wonder how God feels. Well, you chose a football game over me. You chose this over me time where you're going to come and worship me and spend some time at my feet and hear the word and sing praises. The Bible says they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's the good news. Verse 8. Verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit. Hey, the flesh was the old man. The old man. Now, unfortunately, we sometimes walk like the old man. We behave like the old man. The Bible says in in the book of Jude, these be they that are sensual, having not the spirit. When we act fleshly or sensually, the word spiritual means to follow after the spirit. The word sensual means to follow after the senses. What feels good. The illustration I like to use is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Brother Ternowski works right beside KFC, right? Do you ever come out in the parking lot and you can smell that chicken? It's good, isn't it? The smell of it, I don't know if it tastes, the smell of it is wonderful. They got to do that on purpose. That is a wonderful, free advertising tool. Because you smell that chicken and you just, man, that's good stuff. They're appealing to your senses. They're appealing to your flesh. Music appeals to your senses. We have to be careful the kind of music we put in. The things that we, we take in. And so to be sensual, the Bible says when we are, uh, Christ identified those in the book of Jude, the murmurs, the complainers, those that walk about like clouds that have no water. And, and he talked about all these, uh, about uh, uh, the, the, spot, the whited sepulchers and all those things. He said, these be they that are sensual, having not the spirit. He's saying, these are unsaved people. If you don't have the spirit, you're not saved, right? He that hath the son of God 
hath eternal life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not eternal life. Spiritual, the Spirit of God defines our life. But he says, these be that are sensual, having not the Spirit. In other words, when we are sensual, we act like those that have not the Spirit. We act like the unsaved. And God is not pleased. But he says, if you're saved today in verse 9, here's the second word I wrote down. I wrote flesh at verse 3. In verse 9, I put the word spirit. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Are you saved today? Nobody saved? Are you saved today? If you're saved today, the Bible says the spirit of God dwells in you. That's the evidence of salvation. The spirit of God dwells in you. So he says, thou... Uh, in, in the rest of verse 9, now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Folks, this isn't hard to understand, is it? Somebody said, I can't understand the King James Bible. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. All one syllable words. The Bible says here in verse 9, now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's not hard to understand. You're either a child of God or you're not. You either are in the flesh or you're in the spirit. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. I want you to notice some things about the spirit this morning. We, we've seen the flesh, but what does the spirit give us? First of all, it gives us life in Christ. Life in Christ. Verse 11 goes on and says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the spirit do mortify, that means to kill the deeds of the body, ye shall live. We have life in Christ because of the spirit. The Spirit of God has indwelt us and given us new life. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. It is the Spirit of God that put his seal upon us and gave us life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened, that means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Hey, the old man is dead. The flesh is behind us. But because of the compassion and mercy of Christ, we can have life. The Bible says in verse 10, it talks about spiritual life. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead. That's for sure, because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11 talks about resurrection life. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. So my body, right now, my flesh, was dead. In sins, it's condemned. It's going to die. If the Lord tarries is coming, this body's going to go to the grave and it's going to corrupt. It's going to turn back into dust. But Jesus has made my spirit alive. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My spirit shall forever be with the Lord. But one day, he'll also quicken my mortal body. So he's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about resurrection life. And then because of that, we see verse 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Hey, don't chase around that flesh. That flesh, all it ever did was get you in trouble. Those senses, all they did were deceive you and cause you to be sensual. That flesh, all it did was it earned you condemnation. You're not a debtor to that. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. 
But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now look at the second thing. Not only do we have life in Christ because of the Spirit, we are led by Christ. Look at verse 14. I'll give you four things here, and I'll give it to you in small sections. First of all, when we are led by Christ, the Spirit of God gives us a place. Gives us a place. Look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Listen, when I was lost in my sins, I was bound for a place called hell, and one of the names of that place is a place of separation. People think they're going to go to hell and they're going to have a big party and they'll have a a great time. Listen, there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and you're cast into outer darkness. You can't find your neighbor. You can't fellowship with anybody. There's separation from God and there's separation from other people. Uh, But the Bible says in verse 14, because of the Spirit of God, I've been adopted into a family. I have a heavenly Father. And one day I'll spend eternity in heaven with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we see, not only do we see that the Spirit of God gives promise, but it gives, a, or gives placement, but it gives a promise. Verse 17 says, and if children, then heirs. Hey, it just gets better, doesn't it? I wasn't just adopted into a family, and I, I just wasn't uh, discovered that I have a heavenly father that I can call Abba, which means Daddy. It's not just a, a father. It's not just an absentee. Uh, so many people say, well, God, God is somewhere out there, but he's kind of impersonal. No, he's Abba, Father. You can, you can say, hey, Dad. You can go to him like your earthly father. But not only did we discover that when we got saved, he gave us this promise, I'm an heir. If children, then heirs. Verse 17, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. How can it be? If so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. And then Paul's Texan comes out. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I don't know about that woman that was cast at the feet of Jesus. But in my mind I can almost picture her hearing without Christ ever saying that verse, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. What a promise. Not a wonderful thing to know. It's, oh man, this world is so hard living and trying to crucify the flesh and trying to live for it. It's so hard. Hey, the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared. One day, There'll be glory revealed in us. Look at the promise as it goes on. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. How many of you ever said when you got saved, it was like, man, a weight was lifted off. It was like I didn't have to carry around that sin anymore, that, that chain that was holding that ball and chain to my ankle. Somebody just cut it loose. I've been set free. Victory in Jesus. That's what the promise is. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits means a down payment. 
You, you hear what I'm saying? A down payment. Just a little taste. Just a little part. The Spirit of God that cheers your heart and encourages your soul and gets you stirred up for God, that's, that's just a little bit compared to what God's going to give you one day. When you are made perfect and whole and stand before Him. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why did he had hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So he gives us the placement. He gives us a promise. And then verse 26 through 28, he gives us peace. This is about living in the spirit. Now, if you live in the flesh, you're not going to have any of this. You're not going to understand what it's like to have the peace of God. But verse 26, if you're living in the spirit, here's what it says. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I was just, I told you before, I was listening to Paul on the platform, and the night the police came to his home, I went over and spent some time with him. And Paul, you'll remember that we were praying, and there was times when we would pray, and he would pray, I think even Janet was praying with us and there was times where he just stopped talking. It's sometimes, I mean, three or four minutes, there'd be nothing said. We'd just have our heads bowed and we're crying together and we wouldn't say a word, would we? Just be quiet. You say, what's going on in those times? The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of peace to know that the Spirit is speaking on my behalf. When I don't know what to say, he's just in there praying for me. In verse 28, we all love and we know that all things work together to good. For them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And then we see that living in the spirit gives placement, promise, peace, but it also gives purpose. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. You see, what is the doctrine of predestination? Read the rest. Them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then? Or sorry, I missed something here. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Uh, sorry, verse 29. I jumped to verse 30. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. What is predestination? To be conformed to the image of his son. So many people say, well, this predestination, God already, no, no. God has predestinated something for every child of God. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his plan for your life. Somebody say, Pastor, what's the plan? What's God's plan for my life? First of all, he wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. Once you get there, then there's some other things I'm sure he wants you to do. But let's work on that. He predestinated, more of whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. God gave your life purpose. And that purpose is to be destined to be more like Jesus Christ. And then I want you to see, we've seen the flesh, the spirit. I want you to see the victory. Verse 31, and we're almost done. What shall we say then to these things? Paul says, we've talked about the flesh. We've talked about the spirit. 
What do we say to all these things? Here's my conclusion. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up us for delivered him up for us all, how shall he not him with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justified. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughtered. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the victory. Now wait a minute. What does this have to do with John chapter 8? Go back to verse thirty. Three, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Do you know what that sounds like to me? Let he that is without sin among you be first to cast a stone. All these Pharisees and scribes were taking their religion and saying we're gonna condemn her based on that. Jesus said, no, wait a minute. I can look inside her heart And I can see that it is fertile ground. And I'm about to plant a seed in there and she's going to convert and she's going to trust me and she's going to find my mercy is real and my grace is sufficient. And my answer to you is, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. He rather is risen from the dead. And he says, let he that is without sin among you be first to cast a stone. The compassion and the saving power and the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for this very purpose, that you would live in the spirit and not in the flesh. That you would have victorious Christian living. We can live victoriously. Romans chapter six, the chapter says this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! God did not save that woman on that day so she could go back and sin. He said, go and sin no more. Live in grace. Live in mercy. Live in the Spirit. And everybody else left hanging their heads. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning for a moment. and Let's stand to our feet and the instruments are going to begin to play. I wonder today, is somebody here need to experience the grace of God? So one that say, preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. If I were to die today, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. Would you pray for me? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call out your name. I don't want to hurt you in any way, but we'd like to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand? Is there one? I need to experience the grace of God like that. I, I'm not an adulteress like that woman, but I, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm living after the flesh, and the flesh leads to condemnation. The flesh leads to carnality. Would you pray for me? Is there one? Maybe there's some Christians here today that say, Preacher, I'm a child of God, but I'm living in the flesh. You know, there's some tests that we can do. 
throughout your week, you can ask yourself, am I more apt to talk down a brother in Christ or exhort a brother in Christ? Am I more apt to gossip and complain or am I more apt to praise the Lord? Which is it? The Bible says, in everything give thanks. Am I more apt to stay home and watch a ball game or go to the church house and worship the Lord? Just run some tests in your life. There's, there's so many you can choose. And every time we make a choice, we have to ask, now is that a fleshly decision or is that a spiritual decision? Am I going to feed my flesh or am I going to feed my spirit? Christian, would you pray? Brother Baker's going to sing.